Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got two old friends whose bands started around the same time and who've had very different albums hit the 20-year mark recently. Jim Adkins of Jimmy Eat World and Davey Von Bolin of The Promise Ring. Now, I had the idea to pair these guys after seeing a bunch of best of emo lists floating around the internet lately, and it reminded me of the heady days of the late 90s and early 2000s and how many fond memories I have of those times. I saw The Promise Ring and Jimmy Eat World plenty of times back then. Full disclosure, I was then and am now friends with the guys in The Promise Ring. It occurred to me that while the two bands had been on similar trajectories back then, that they diverged right around 20 years ago in a really interesting way. I figured it'd be fun to reconnect them and see what they had to say about it. The Promise Ring were sort of at the top of the emo heap in the late 1990s, though everybody hated that word with a passion back then. They were early fans of Jimmy Eat World music, and the bands toured together a few times over the years. By the end of the century, the Promise Ring had hit a weird rough patch. Von Bolin had surgery for a brain tumor, and the band was naturally forced to slow down considerably. When they returned with their much-anticipated fourth album, Woodwater, it represented what felt at the time like a pretty intense left turn. The songs were slower and more melodic, not necessarily what fans were expecting. The album has gotten a rightful reappraisal in the 20 years since its release. The Promise Ring split up soon after, and Davey went on to form the band Maritime with Promise Ring drummer Dan Didier, and they released a string of great records that you should definitely check out. Jimmy Eat World also found themselves at a crossroads 20 years ago, having parted company with a major label. They self-funded a new album. That album, 2001's Bleed American, spawned a left-field hit for the band, a song called The Middle. It launched Jimmy Eat World into the mainstream before they knew what hit him, and it's one of those songs that, to this day, you might hear on the radio. It was a blip, of course, in a consistently fantastic career. Jimmy Eat World kept making records and touring. Their latest is 2019's Surviving. So it was an interesting point in time for both of these guys, who, as you'll hear, remain fast friends after all these years. Playing music isn't a huge part of Von Bolin's life anymore, though he does point out that Maritime is technically still a band. Good news. These two chat about their 20-ish year-old records, fatherhood, drinking, touring in the 90s, and lots more. Davey tells a great story I hadn't heard before about the Promise Ring's insane pact with each other in their earliest days. Sadly, Jim and Davey never get around to talking about Davey's guest vocals on Bleed American, but maybe we'll just have to have them chat again sometime. Enjoy. Is that the place you took us, Champs? It's weird when people want to know stuff about like that that time touring and what this what the quote unquote scene was like during those times because it's it's like um, there was nobody there. <laughs> it was just us and like maybe like six other people in a basement most of the time, and it's just funny that it's such a big deal now. I feel like I lose people when we talk about how you book tours and it's like, oh, well, you got the Radio Shack dialer and then you switched out the mechanics of it with a soldering gun. And then you could like mock the payphone sound. And that's how we like book tours because we couldn't afford the long distance yeah. bill on our actual phone. Even starting that sentence with first you go to a payphone, you kind of <laughs> right. lose you kind of lose about 80 percent of the people. Right. Right. Yeah. So we use our truckers atlas to get close to the town. Right. And then, um, you know, you dial the promoter's beeper or something and then they <laughs> right. get back to you with directions to the club. And at that moment, you always experience this this twinge of dread, like maybe they just bailed on the gig and you're actually not playing that night because that happens. Right. Well, I mean, probably still happens. I do feel like I'm at least aware enough that like 
nothing really has changed. There's still basement shows with six people, you know, with some tight knit scene. It's just we're not one of the six anymore. Yeah. As connected as everyone thinks they are, there could be this insane hardcore scene across town that I don't I've never know about. My brother has always kind of lived in that scene. So I know it exists. I just am not nearly cool enough to like have any awareness to any of it anymore. I don't think it's a it's a lack of coolness, Davey, for you. I think it's I think it's just there's so much. Like you, yeah. you can't possibly keep up with it all. Like you, of course, you're not going to know about the thing next door because you know you have a cosmic number of other things competing for your attention and time. Does it freak you out when uh, records you worked on have anniversaries that end in five and zero now? <laughs> no, uh, you won't. No, when I think of your experiences, that is crazy to me. There feels like a falling off point to me, and that falling off point feels a hundred million years ago. So to me, everything feels old. Right. And everything feels like, you know, where I feel like if I was still, you know, you're in your studio, like if I still went to the studio and had more of a linear experience to that, it would freak me out more. Like I can't imagine going on stage and like having nearly the self-confidence it would take to drag my ass out on on stage and perform. Like legit. No, 100%. That is exactly how I feel like. I would never, ever be able to convince myself that that was a good idea. That's how that's how removed I feel. Like whether the I don't know where the truth lies or whether that matters, but that's how removed I feel. Yeah, I mean, you you want to do it or you don't. It could be that simple. Maybe it's a little bit more nuanced than that, and in, in the sense of uh, what you want to do is meeting your expectations or it isn't. And is that good enough to want it, or is it not good enough to take the priority over other things? I mean, everyone has to kind of come to that decision on, I think at some point, how much they want to make it their life. Because <laughs> it's, it's really like, you don't clock out. Right. You know, you, there's trade-offs. I think that, that was uh, that's where I started to falter. And it's so funny that it's you and I talking because in, you know, 90% of the scenarios where I would have this conversation, I would be like, oh, well, my kids are the oldest. I was the first one to get married and kind of like move towards some of that like adulthood stuff. But talking to you guys, like you guys were, especially Zach, I remember being on, you know, <laughs> being on the road and like in your guys's room zach would have like the blanket over his head talking to his wife and like talking about his daughter's grades and stuff and i was like my mind was like <laughs> completely blown by like that idea of like trying to like navigate that which seemed like massively huge life stuff and then also like you know be on tour and like you know committed or it wasn't long after that that i think you know, everybody started having kids and yeah, I mean, at the time, obviously it felt like a million miles away. And then it was like, what, 18 months or something. <laughs> How did like your friends, were you one of the first people to quote unquote, settle down somewhat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, I mean, I know your oldest son is a little older than mine, but about the same. Right. Um, I, cause my son will be 18 in like two months. Yeah. Mine's 19. So yeah, I was the first one in the band to get married. Definitely the first one in the band to have kids. 
buy a house, which is like stuff that like puts you on the hook a little bit. I don't want it to sound old or whatever, but like, you know, like there's just like pulls on your priorities a little bit. Right. So yeah. it's like, and on your choices and on your like time that you can spend. So it just changes it a little bit. And I think that was, that's probably one of, I think one of the more like things, the more negative like feelings that I had like throughout like the last 10 years of playing music for me was like, I had the most pull away and I always just felt guilty about it. You know, like those guys want to do some like cool stuff and I'd be like, yeah, but I don't really want to, or like, I don't really want to make that, make that choice. Guilty, guilty, like not being present for the, the growing family, but guilty for not being like as invested as the other guys in the, in the music project. I chose the band and like, you know, left my wife hanging a, a bunch of times, but it really felt like at the end, the less viable it seemed to be, the more exotic the tour we would be offered, you know, like, I don't know, well, right. you'll just do Singapore, Hong, Hong Kong and like weird parts of the Far East you've never been to. I mean, it's going to net no money, you know, and I'd be like, that'd be super great to do though but then you take it back to the family and be like yeah i'm gonna be gone for two months i'm gonna make no money but i get to do all this cool stuff right yeah so i feel like it cost those guys a bunch of cool experiences yeah it might be a better sell if you could pitch it as if there was an opportunity to bring them into it and have like share some of that you know 100 i think everybody at this point at the time they were probably like son of this guy is so you know but i think now they'd be like i mean everyone would agree that it's like whatever but is that something that you end up talking about a lot? Like, like, where's Davey? Like people, people kind of get in your, want to get in your head about it, that you're not really doing music much anymore. People are talking about it. They're not talking to me about it. So nobody like asks me like, oh, why don't you do anything? Like people whose kids I coached basketball to in the last like seven or eight years, who maybe heard that song, Milwaukee, we wrote, you know, on the radio for like six months are like, you still doing music? Those are the people that talk to me about music. Not like I don't run into, I get like, like I said, at the top of this, like I talking to you, like whatever that was six, nine months ago was like one of the more recent conversations with people that I, that I've known from way back that I've, that I've had. Other musicians are far too into themselves to really care about like what, <laughs> what the other musicians are doing or not doing. <laughs> That's not true. I get, I, uh, Scott Shaneback texts me not often, but fairly regularly when he's like, drunk somewhere and something ah. like hits something hits like oh dude you should be here right now or whatever like this reminds me of you know whatever stupid thing we did you know we got to hang out with scott not too long ago yeah probably got a 2 a.m text 2 a.m text from him about <laughs> updates he's live tweeting you so you know so let me while we're while we're in this phase of this conversation let me ask so you said you you haven't you haven't drank in like 10 years did you say that nine and change still that is so hard to imagine for me that you still play shows because that was like and in pr probably one of the more sadder admissions that I'll, that I'll make hopefully one of the sadder admissions that i'll make is like definitely at the end of like doing tours of maritime when eric axelson was still traveling with us there'd be like the looking at your watch like, ah, oh, it's 6.30, so I better have two beers, like, right now, or else I won't, I won't, <laughs> I won't be very much fun in a minute. Yeah. So I, I commend you uh, on your ability to uh, keep going. And I don't want to sound like I'm some sad sack either, but, <laughs> but it felt like, it, you know, it felt like a little utilitarian at the time, 
which is, I guess, another reason that it, like I continue to make the choice not to do it because it's like clearly at that point my heart wasn't really in it. That sounds like a completely healthy decision, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, like it, it. Yeah, sure, drinking a lot to make the thing you kind of don't have your heart in more palatable to do. Uh, that's not really that healthy, but like then taking the action to cut out the thing you don't really want to do, you know, like, yeah, I get it. That's totally okay. For me, it wasn't really necessarily cutting out the thing I didn't want to do or, or, uh, trying to enjoy the thing I did do. It was just, it was just what I did. (laughs) You know, I'm like, I'm like one of those, I'm like one of those people. Well, good on you, man. I definitely still drink, but, um, my God, if I had like a, if I had a third beer in a day, like that would be like a ton. Once you take the rock and roll out of it, you become like a normal drinker. Then that's, that's great. I'm sure you have memories of things you did with Philip Stira that you're like, how in the world in that like 12 hour period, did we not get arrested like four times? You know, when he convinced you that the cops don't work on weekends. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. Is he's, he's German. I'm in Germany. What he's saying sort of, I want it to make sense. So I'm going to go along with it. Right. It just was just for like at least a five year period. It was just such a massive part of that. It was like getting messed up. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's socially acceptable. It's it's kind of like in a cliche, it's kind of expected that you can party yeah. and and keep it together and, and be impervious to the, the effects afterwards and skate through any potential consequences. <laughs> right. And it's, you know, in a lot of cases, it's free <laughs> and it's, you know, in, in your, um, you're miles away from any actual responsibilities. So let's change gears. Let's talk about this stuff on Josh's list here so we can't... Uh, Does Josh have a list? He, well, it's not a list. It's uh, He's hoping we can talk to about Woodwater and Bleed American because they're both turning 20. I remember at the time when you guys made Woodwater, you specifically wanted somebody you didn't have a history with who wasn't looking at the material from the frame of, of a scene and was just looking at it from the frame of like, here are some songs. Let's make some let's make the best songs into recordings possible. I don't remember that specific. I don't remember that specifically. Maybe Jason, maybe Jason that. mentioned that, but I think I'm, no. I'm pretty sure that it's so funny because Jason was the one prior when we were like just in the period of writing all these songs. Jason was like, we should just change the name of the band. And I remember that being like, that is the dumbest idea. I was like so offended by the idea, just in its illogic, you know, (laughs) like, why would you continue to do exactly, but just one day just change the name of the band and like basically lose all the momentum. But every decision we made from that moment forward, looking back now, like, trying to get someone who wasn't at all familiar with the band that would have like maybe helped us with the conversation of how do you tie the things together? Every decision we made should it like was made in favor of like, we should have just changed the band's name. Well, I mean, putting that aside, like just thinking about the record itself, like, I mean, do you feel like you got what you wanted? Like when you're looking back at decisions and how they played out, like, I don't know, that's kind of not up to you. Even on your best days, if you're doing everything you think you should, still, it's not up to you how it plays out. Maybe changing your name of your band is a little extreme, but like wanting to branch out and get someone outside this, the quote unquote scene to see what they would bring yeah. to it. No, for sure. You guys experienced a lot of those same years where it's like, man, like you didn't really have time to think. You were like so caught in the cycle. Whereas, like, I mean, you might talk in the van, <laughs> like, but like that's the only time, like, any sort of like, non-grind conversation you know like everything was so in the grind that you're like don't really ever come up for air so 
being that we like came up for so much air, that just made it a weird experience. Like there was no way that was not going to be a weird experience, whether the record was going to sound different or whatever. I think we turned over the band twice <laughs> within the making of that record, you know, with going from Scott Shane back to, or we added Scott Shane back. God, I don't even know when we, we added him at some point during that time. <laughs> Maybe we wrote a record with him. I don't even remember at this point, but like, you know, he left the band for Woodwater basically. So when, while we were writing and recording, we didn't really have a bass player. There was literally nothing that was like consistent or like, normal i think at the time maybe so hindsight being what it is like you mentioned it just it was going to be a crazy experience regardless had it been like wildly successful or wildly uh, wildly terrible failure and i think it landed somewhere in the middle you know i think it would have been weird regardless you definitely got something that you hadn't done before that's true yeah it definitely felt like on its way like in that process of making a record when you're like finding your way a little bit, you write songs and it's like, Oh, that's kind of it, but maybe not all the way it. And so I think that there was like a, maybe it's like the, it's kind of like a pathway. We just never, you never get to the clearing, I guess is, is kind of how I see that record because we just never really, never really finished it. I guess it's a weird thing being like for having that be the last promise ring record. You know, like just because it was like grind, 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 little break, total flux, end of band. And those periods were like in time, like equal spaces, oddly, you know, like especially like in that grind stage. And I think Jimmy World definitely had that. Like there was three, probably three records came out in the span of like three years, you know, (laughs) right. And tours in between. And I mean, that like defines us so much of who you were, but it was like, it's now it's a blip right now it's a blip on the screen but it's like you know between the space between bleed american you know and clarity is like very small but like it's a huge portion of how people think of you and i feel like we were very busy that whole in between time right yeah no there's no zero downtime between any of that right i mean even i mean static prevails you know came out but it feels like it hit but then all right behind it I remember talking to you and you were saying like, and we're, and this clarity record we have, everyone's going to hate. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of who you said it sounded like. Maybe you told me it was, it, you made a record that sounds like Jesus and Mary Chain and everyone's going to hate it. I can see maybe younger me thinking that something like Lucky Denver Mint could have been on Honey's Dead. <laughs> you know, like the, like the bells and extra weird kind of things in the, I don't know, simplifying melodies. Sure. I think Jesus and Mary Chain back then was probably like the the ultimate goal of songwriting for me. So of course I would be like thinking we were shooting for that. Right. It still kind of <laughs> is really. You're always going to think what you're doing is a total stretch, but other people might not, you know, like I think, yeah, I think Woodwater definitely sounds like new, but it's still you. It still sounds like you guys. I don't think it's that crazy of a stretch, but it's it's definitely a, it's definitely like pushing into new things that you guys hadn't done before. You know, it's crazy that you think of it more of like a document of exploration, because from my perspective, it sounds pretty well fleshed out, like you were crafting things and you were you had thought about things and you made intentional decisions about the way things sounded and, you know, where instrument leads would happen you know, because they go away, you know, like, I think that's, a, that's, a, this isn't really landing the plane, but I think that was a common mistake of ours as kids, like instrument leads never went away. They were just like the thing that happened along <laughs> with every other, along with anything else, anybody else in the band wanted to have as a hook. They just throw it all in there and everyone gets to do their cool thing. The whole song. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know if I ever learned that uh, particular lesson. I knew it I, at some point. I knew it was there, but I don't know if I ever uh, <laughs> ever put it into practice. But no, it's true. At some point, we all definitely thought like intensity is like quantity and you know speed. Like the more things you can do, and the faster and louder it can be, is more intensity. Like, and then it, obviously at some point you realize like no, like empty space is like a huge, a huge poignant thing. You know, that record definitely has some empty space. So I'll give, I'll give it that. I feel like we wrote it when we weren't really even in band mode. You know, we were like, it, it did, there was less organic feel to it for like from the writing perspective. So it kind of felt like, oh, if we can like put this back into the promise ring, this will be like a thing. But we just ne- never did that. So for me, it feels like kind of a dangling. That That's probably why I feel the way it is, even though maybe from an outside perspective, it doesn't feel at all like that. I'm wondering if like before Woodwater, if you guys were used to just being together all the time, working that way, and then having to transition to a different way of writing kind of made it feel like less cohesive. Yeah, no, there was definitely like less band practice at the at the band practice space where you all picked up your instruments, you played through your set, and then you were like, oh, yeah, you know, like, let's jam on some riffs. <laughs> you know, like, there was certainly less of that at that point. Every once in a while, I think it'd be fun to jam on riffs. <laughs> right, and then like, when everyone gets lost, like, no, I think we found the change. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's when you think about like how you, how you wrote when you were a kid, like, it's kind of funny. I think it's funny. For sure. Because it was, it was, let's throw everything in. Okay, what are we doing next? Uh, how about this? Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, I got a part for that. Cool. All right. Uh, then it goes here. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. Right. Anything else? No, that's the song. We, you know, Maritime was more of a jam on riffs band than Promise Ring. And I guess Maritime's still together, so I shouldn't use the past tense because, you know, there's, there's still, a, there's still a, another record in there somewhere, probably. Breaking news on it for Josh here. But we would jam on riffs all the time. That was like kind of how we wrote, which was, I guess, why we all enjoyed it. Once you get to that point where you like, and maybe you didn't experience this, but like no one really like expected or cared if we did anything. Like it's probably been seven years since we have been in the same room together, but like no one noticed for like two or three years, you know, like nobody said like, oh, is maritime over? And I actually, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that yet, (laughs) but you know, like, it's different when, so we like jamming on riffs and like that type of thing where it's like, this might turn into a song or not. Like it's a little bit more of a freedom to do that. It was more about like, oh, it's Thursday night. So I'm going to stay up late and like hang out with dudes and probably drink a few too many beers. You know, if we find some songs in there, that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but it's certainly not like important that we do. You're more likely to actually complete things when that isn't the the goal. <laughs> Right. If you can turn off your expectations for it and just let it kind of happen, then like you're going to find something that you're into. Or even if you don't, like you're going to you're going to probably enjoy yourself or even the fact that you're going through the motions is going to like keep your chops up. Right. I I didn't realize how much time had passed, actually, since uh, until I said seven years. I was like, dang, time time really goes. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. 
Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. When was Bleed American and Woodwater, when, did they come out the same year? They weren't long apart from each other. Uh, they were a year apart. You, that makes sense yeah. then, because then you would have been through Bleed American, and w- it would make sense that you had the studio still new, and you guys would have been like writing, starting to write. Maybe. Yeah, I think we, the only Woodwater touring we did with you guys, was in Europe. We did, we definitely did like England, and I think we met you in Scotland. It was very jet lagged, and some kid kept screaming like straight in front of me kept screaming where's jimmy (laughs) like the whole set of ours he was just every time we stopped making noise he would like pull himself up on the barrier and yell where's jimmy (laughs) i was like dude i think we all know where they actually are it's like is this rhetorical i'm a little bit like i'm having a little bit of a hard time here man you can stop yelling that would be cool I remember being in Germany with you, I think. We did Promise Ring Jimmy World, like Philip Stira, yeah. Maximum Party Tours. We did. Yeah. We definitely did that. But I think we also did Once You Guys Broke and did the big tour. And we were just like opening band that people, for the most part, did not want to hear. What was the reaction like from you guys and people that you were around when everyone saw Bleed American kind of like take off? <laughs> you know, it's hard to remember that because I'm so used to at this point trying to anchor my whole like existence to you guys when straight people ask me like like oh so you were in a band for 20 years whatever it's like oh yeah yeah and then like they kind of like nod like I'm nodding yes but I mean no for like a really long time until I say until I'm like okay well Jimmy World and they'll be like oh yeah yeah you know then they're like it all makes sense as soon as i say that but i mean so going to when it like legit hit i don't remember it being a big thing around us but for us in the band i think it was like after watching after having like because we did a bunch of touring on clarity with you guys like did the u.s and i think we that's when we did the europe madness you know tour so i and I'm assuming we did do that tour, right? I'm not just making it up. You guys. I remember very specifically being on a bus with you in, in Stira in Germany. But that was also uh, that was also when you guys were doing like, a, you got on 120 minutes, I think, when we were opening up for you guys. Which I got to say, opening up for you guys was definitely one of the things that I think uh, helped 
propel us to the next level. And we definitely wouldn't we definitely wouldn't be where we are now if if it wasn't for your guys seeing something in what we were doing that you thought was cool. Uh, this is on brand Jim Atkins. I'm not, I'm not going to sit through it, man. Like you guys were superstars from the minute we met the minute Carrie Washington said, Hey, you guys should meet my friends from Phoenix. Like at the minute we saw you guys play, it was like, Oh, like these dudes are good at this. Like oh, I don't you know. guys did not break. You guys did not break character one time in the hundred odd years I'm sure you felt like you had bad shows, but it was like, oh my God, it's there. I mean, because we were, and it's actually one thing that I really liked about us. It was like, we might play two songs and walk off to booze, or we might have the greatest show of our lives, but I don't know, <laughs> you know? So I, I mean, that's, I think that's in especially my nature and apparently the natures of the people I played in a band with, but you guys were the exact opposite and we were so jealous of it all the time. It was like, man, these guys like are always going to like have a good show. They are always gonna do the thing they do, and everyone's gonna love it. I've I've never seen you guys get walk off after two songs being booed. It's happened. You ever end up at a gig where it was like, where it was like nine nine much more hardcore bands than you and you? Like the first four years of the band, probably yeah. I mean, the entire first European tour we did. You ever end up with like nine other ska bands in you? I think that would have been more fun. If you, um, yeah, I guess if, no. if your loops would have been like Southern California and Utah, then you probably would have ended up in that situation. <laughs> right. It's funny how big the world was, right? I mean, like when you guys were like so far away. Yeah. The West Coast for for a long time, like in our like punk rock circles was like, you just, you want to lose money, go to the West Coast, man. Like nobody, you, you got to be to make it, you know, like to survive the Denver, you know, whatever the denver boise seattle and like you know you're, you're spent it's a lot of expenses right so like to survive all the way back around and back through like you better even have, either have a fat wad of cash or like you better be somebody like that was the thinking for a long time that's all we knew was like it's 10 hours here mm-hmm. it's seven hours here we were like kind of shocked when we got to the east coast and was like you know, like hour, hour and a half, two hours max from Florida up to New York, Boston. The so we haven't talked enough about uh, about Bleed American though, because you guys actually have you guys actually have some experiences from that. When the middle hit, you know, it was like the song of the summer, right? It was freaking everywhere. But what, when it hit, because that those two weeks when a song like that hits, and I remember hearing Nirvana. You know, started four guys in a cargo van and finished the tour on an airplane. You know, so it's like when it hits, and obviously that's probably not, no offense, but probably not the experience you had, but something like that. We definitely noticed leading up to Bleed American being released that like the shows got a little bit better. Maybe there'd be more people. Maybe we'd be opening for like, you know, a bigger band. There was just this trajectory that seemed like it was, you know, it was encouraging. And, uh, you know, when we got to Europe, like Clari- Clarity was actually getting way bigger in Germany after Bleed American was made, but before we had a label for it. And so we, we got to ride on a bus for the first time in Germany. Right. All of these things happened kind of incrementally. And it wasn't that weird to think that something got a little bit better. And we'd also had so many experiences that we just thought were a joke that 
the the more the more crazy experiences kind of got filed away into the like the hey this is weird rather than le- really letting it sink in and think wow this is real it wasn't until it wasn't until like the the like mid 2003 that i realized what had happened <laughs> it's very interesting that was not my experience with it it was like whoa this is like the hit of the year and these guys did it that's another thing that no one's going to understand now is that when when something took off it took off everywhere all at once and like this it happened regularly something would just blow up and when it did it was everywhere and everything there was way less there was way less niche even if your whole thing was ska and the ska scene you'd still know that you'd still know smells like teen spirit was was everywhere you still know Candlebox had a song or whatever, or whatever was like big at the time, even if it wasn't like your thing. Wow, Candlebox. Don't ask why. I just thought of that. It was just like thinking about the late '90s that sort of or Collective Soul. It's not where I would have gone, but I'm glad you. I'm glad you, <laughs> you took it there. Maybe because we mixed Bleed American in the in the studio that was was uh, previously like Maverick, and I had to look at a Candlebox Platinum record every day going to mix that thing. Speaking of band, and I literally paused on uh, Candlebox because. I was just having a conversation of like, what's the worst song ever? And I always say it's Crazy Town, that butterfly song. To me, that's like the most offensive piece of music out there. So, but I, I hadn't thought of Candlebox, so <laughs> I'll have to do a terribleness side by side later. Come, my lady. Come, come, my lady. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like so offensive. That's a hook. Right. But I mean, like outside of the musical part of it, it's just so offensive full stop and then like the whole presentation is offensive in its own way and then you get to the music you know where it's like it watered down 311 thing or whatever whatever they were doing maybe you should look up their cover of new noise <laughs> boy i'm not trying i'm not trying to shovel deeper unfortunately let's the- get davy talking so much trash he can never come back <laughs> i think i'm already there i'm just trying to cling on to the rays of light you know what i mean i just can't i can't go deeper into the darkness <laughs> at this point in my life are you playing at all lately How often do you pick up a guitar? We moved houses like 18 months ago. So now I have like, you know, the stereo that sat in the basement forever and all my LPs that were like my brother housed for me for all that time, like are now actually in a spot. So music's kind of coming back for me a little bit. Probably I pick up a guitar like twice a week, once a week. That's more than more than I used to, for sure. When you like stop at mediocre, you never lose it. You know, I mean, I think if I like, like you said, uh, keeping your chops, like if you never have chops, you never decline chops. So I think I'm still the average rhythm guitar player that I always have. <laughs> you need a slightly better story. You should say like, I don't want to be too good because then I won't be able to, it'll influence my, uh, my expression. The only reason I play guitar, and this is the real story, this is the no holds barred honest truth, Jim Atkins. The only reason I play guitar at all is because I don't sing well enough to sing in a band. Like I wanted to just be the singer, like mic cord wrapped around my arm, like, you know, body passing, like front man, but um, it didn't sing good. So no one was like, why would we add you? (laughs) Were Were you just the singer in 10 Boy Summer? No, ironically, I was just the guitar player. I think I hollered in the background like like anyone would but uh <laughs> but i did not uh, sing in that band that's another that's another thing it's like out of out of nowhere i remember the food not bombs comp that that was on but i don't remember significant portions of like this last year 
that's definitely memory, right? Like we have those like burnt imprint moments and then like minutia in between until your next imprint moment. Yeah. I mean, maybe that, maybe that's in part because like in all that time was like some kind of major discovery, life discovery things, you know, kind of uh, parenting yourself on a level that you might not have thought of before. I mean, the newness of it all kind of made it everything stick out. I mean, with our kids, our oldest sons specifically, we have that shared experience being like, I mean, he's probably older than you were when you were like giving your life to this, right? Like when you were like making yeah. a conscious choice and people ask me all that time, all, people asked, they've, this is like a key interview question I get. And I don't, I don't know if you get it because you have stuff currently going on. So people don't ever want to talk about the all the way beginning, beginning, like they do me, <laughs> but people be like, how did it, like what, made promise ring work or whatever i have like a definite answer we sat around a table and we're like everybody who thinks that they're going to have anything else in their life in the next five years fuck off like we are doing this for five years and we're going to play a million shows and give everything we can and if at that point it doesn't work whatever we're like everybody you just put everything on hold for five years and i think after like five months we wanted to kill each other but you know <laughs> But I think, you know, somehow like it, it like lasted just long enough. So the only control that we had were like, we're not doing shit. We're not going to have a weak link. You know, the one guy who like wants to spend time with his girlfriend. So the band breaks up the one person that wants to like hold down a real job and get paid money and have a car. Like these people are useless. We need like four people that are not going to make any choices except for, for the band. And, uh, you guys seem like you'd be way too more, way too casual, uh, at, especially at the teenage points in your life. But um, that was our secret for success. I mean, you that's what you're doing. Well, for sure. Anyway, you know, like it's kind of what you're doing anyway. If it, but it was sort of news to me when I was already doing that, that, that I had chosen that. <laughs> Can you even imagine your son like approaching you and being like, this is what I'm doing. I mean, and not so much in that you'd be like, no, that's a terrible idea and it's unsafe. And maybe you would, but not so much in that way, but just in like the, I don't even believe people would be as like just incoherent and just out there. Like, oh yeah, we're just going to, I'm 17. I'm just going to get in a van with like three other irresponsible dudes. And we are going to like, you know, drive around in this like piece of garbage, you know, with the heat full on blast. So it doesn't overheat. And like, make this happen like can you even imagine what are you doing for money i don't know where are you staying i don't know how are you gonna eat i don't know i'm on tour right like, but can you even imagine like not only like your acceptance of it but like your son being like this is it this is the plan would you you try to talk him out of it <laughs> would i mm, i mean being that i had the exact specific experience in part yeah right where you'd be like okay but cool hindsight being 2020 for me like these are like some of the dominoes. Like if you choose them, like yeah. choose them. But like you should know, you know, like you're not going to feel at home in your hometown because you're going to be gone 10 months of the year for the next 10 years. Yeah. You'll come back and your friends will have totally different friends. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, Courtney Marie Andrews. Do you know her? I think maybe I met her in Milwaukee if she was with you at that point. Yeah. Um, when I ran on stage for 14 seconds. She sang on a couple songs on our invented yep. record. And I was, I, I thought like, we should just, we should just get her to be on tour with us and, and cover these parts because it'd be so rad. I wouldn't have to sing all the hard parts on some other songs and she could cover that. 
we could we could finally have like the keyboards that happen on the record like yeah. live you know it could, it could just open up so much doors so she shreds on guitar so we could have her do that sometimes too and i kind of laid it out but but she really had uh at that point she'd been on tour and like done some pretty hardcore touring on her own but i was like okay here's what's gonna happen like if you think this is something that you want to do like this is really all i can think of that i'm actually asking you like here's where i've been here's here's the pitfalls here's what's going to be rad here's what's going to be freaky here's what you're giving up or here's what you have to do and anything else you you kind of have to give it up like make this informed choice about what you're doing right i say i say all that to say like you know that's all you can really do with your kids is hope that enough has kind of gone sideways up until now that they're actually going to give what you have to say a shot and it's not just dad you know <laughs> right you're, yeah, working, yeah. you're coming from a deficit this is totally not rock and roll but you're coming from a deficit just being dad you know like kids go through that phase of like starts when they're about two and a half to three of like i do it i do it like they don't even know where it's coming from but like it, it comes back again somewhere around puberty of like you know they don't even understand where it comes from they want to be independent they want to parent themselves you just hope that you've kind of made enough sense to them over the years that they can weigh what you're bringing on them with uh, a sound you know an open mind right no for sure can't even imagine the first part where they are interested in that before I can even imagine how I would react. You know what I mean? I'd be stoked that they'd found something they want to make their life. They're that passionate about something. I mean, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Certainly till the moment I found music, I was like, I don't, I can't even see myself growing up, you know, <laughs> like yeah, much like doing something, you know, what am I going to do? And I'm, what am I going to do as an adult? Like I, I don't want to do, I don't want to do anything like I would be I'd probably just like you. I'd be happy that they were like stoked on something, you know, because if you're not, it's much harder path. <laughs> you know, I think for both of us, right. When we were like kind of in that decision of like, all right, the next phase of life is coming. We were like going, I'm, I'm running in the opposite direction. And it's like happens to also be towards something that I am super passionate about. So that obviously made everything easier, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Also, I think like it, it, you know, you don't have to figure it all out at once. Yeah. As much as society and your parents are, are, are want you to have it figured out, like you really don't. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. No, totally. Totally. This is such a bummer, not rock and roll thing to talk about right now. <laughs> what people really want to know. <laughs> Parenting with yeah. Davey and Jim. Well, I mean, back when we were doing it, it was not cool. You were not on a good path. <laughs> If you were doing what we were doing, right? <laughs> you were not at all on a good path if you were doing what we were doing when we were doing it. And now it's like, yeah, sure, High School Musical, you know, like right. whatever. Right. Yeah, pop culture changed a little bit. Still, it's still odd having conversations with like other parents who have like actual jobs, you know. What's funny, and maybe you have this too, but like when you meet your neighbors, like you probably have it like right away where it's like, I'm out, I'm this guy. I, I'm in a band, whatever. And then they acclimate to that concept. My experience is totally different. My experience is that they don't know and they think you're normal until at one point they like somehow trip over a YouTube video. And then it's like, you, you like I can see them coming. And maybe you have a little bit of this because you might not, they might not, you know, connect right away. I would imagine in Phoenix, they probably do, but, but it's like months down the road where someone will be like, they'll come walking across the, across the yard or the cul-de-sac or what have you and be like, 
I know who you are. And I can see the minute they like come walking at me, I know, I know where this is headed right away where I'm like, oh, you found out. When my kids were like in fourth grade or something, I did like Christmas Carol leading in class. And uh, there was, you know, other parents there volunteering, helping out. And one of the other dads I got to be friends with. And like a year later, he was like, I thought you were like the music teacher that day. Like, I thought you were like a substitute music teacher coming in to do this. And like, not, I had no idea who you were and what you did. Like, <laughs> I must not have been that great at Christmas caroling then. <laughs> Don't you have a great story of tying this all in for the for the podcast, but didn't you carry it? And maybe this is like a second, third hand story that I've never heard directly from you, but from other people where you karaoke'd at a bar and did Jimmy World songs. Yeah. And didn't win? Didn't win like a competition? Yeah, it was a competition. I lost to someone that did a really, really spot on version of Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover. <laughs> I got to give it up. They beat me. Hands down. Fair and square. That is such a great, like, it's so, like, hypothetical. Like, what if you went in and did your own karaoke? It's so amazing that that happened. Uh, That was when I still drank. (laughs) It seemed like a great idea after a couple that... Well, you know... I don't, I don't want to be to play devil's advocate here, but that, that <laughs> tale alone is an advertisement for drinking. Because <laughs> that is amazing that it happened. I've also like, like uh, failed out pretty quickly doing our songs on Guitar Hero. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Man. Being in the band doesn't give you any extra credit when you try to play Guitar Hero. I never got a hang of that at all which might speak to my actual guitar skills too <laughs> but well it's good talking to you davy yeah man i'm glad you could do it good to see you man thanks for listening to the talk house podcast and thanks to davy von bolin and jim atkins for chatting if you liked what you heard please follow talk house on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great written pieces on talkhouse.com this episode was produced by myron kaplan and the talk house theme is composed and performed by the range see you next time